people who grow up in this setting is that sometimes they can become resentful towards the church mm, yeah. because they can say, you know, I was, I, I was treated in this way or held to this expectation or judged, you know, people were, I was under a microscope and people were judging me and I didn't get to just be like a normal kid who goes through normal kid stuff. And, um, and they can grow resentful towards the church. And so I would say that's something to think about is that, you know, we want to follow these principles, but not in a way that would make a person feel that they're not loved or welcome or have grace. So I think that that's an important point in this is like, let's remember to be a gracious community. Let's remember to be a Christ-like loving community. Let's remember that even the children of leaders are children in our church. And, you know, we did a baby dedication on Sunday. One of the things I always say is we're a congregation, not a crowd. Hey, welcome to Whitefields Community Church Sermon Extra. Great to have you with us again this week. I'm here with Pastor Nick Katie. He's the pastor of Whitefields Community Church here in Longmont, Colorado. And we are, after one week hiatus, back in our series, equipped to serve as we've been studying through Paul's, uh, what they call pastoral epistles to Timothy and to Titus. And we are in Titus chapter one. And we were Titus chapter one, verses five through 16. And the title of the message was Truth That Transforms. And so if you missed any of that, head over to whitefieldschurch.com. You can download it there off the website or sign up for our app. And uh, if you do that, then you'll get updates when, when our podcasts are ready or when we're about to go live with our services. And you can certainly be able to watch all of our content there as well. And of course, you know, YouTube, Facebook, all your favorite podcasting platforms. And, you know, as much as you interact with the content, whether that's like and subscribe, whether that is uh, rate and review or just leaving comments or suggestions or questions or anything like that, it just boosts it up in the ratings. And so people are Googling things about what does, you know, what does it mean? What is truth? You know, and uh, we can provide them with Christ-centered and, uh, and uh, gospel-centered answers to their questions. And so, so this week we find ourselves in uh, kind of a similar passage to 1 Timothy chapter 3, where Titus gets into, you know, a list of, of qualifications for leaders in the church. And so we just kind of wanted to dial down maybe a little bit into the weeds, maybe into some of the definitions, maybe into some of the criteria, and kind of talk about some like real world application of like, how do we actually see this list in our church? How does, how do we operate in this? How do we view some of these things? Maybe dial down into what, what we think some of these, you know, how do we apply some of these things on the list? And so we just want to start there first. I think first question I think is how do we as Whitefields Church, as our leadership, how do we function as a leadership and, 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 you know, as elders and pastors and leaders and all of those kind of things? So, Yeah, so we talked about on Sunday, there are three words, two that are used in this passage and in 1 Timothy that are used interchangeably. Those are overseer and elder. And as I explained, elder speaks of the person's character, specifically their um, maturity. And overseer speaks of their role in what they do in that function, which is that they oversee the spiritual and practical matters of the church. And we have this third term, which is not used in this text, but is used in other texts like Ephesians chapter four, which is the word pastor or shepherd. They're the same word because in Greek, it's the word poimen, which literally means shepherd, 
And then our English word pastor is actually just the Latin word for shepherd. In fact, if you look in other languages, mm -hmm. the word that they use for pastor is oftentimes the exact same word that they use for a shepherd in their language. And so, um, so what, what are these three persons, right? We talked about the Greek words. The reason I brought that up on Sunday is because I think it's, it is going to be interesting. It'll trigger some memories as you hear those words. So for example, you hear the word elder in Greek is the word presbyteros, from which we get the word presbyterian, right? Which is an elder-led form of church government. Then you get episkopos, which is a bishop-led church form of government. Um, episkopos meaning bishop or overseer. And so Episcopalian, Episcopalian, right? that's where that comes from. And so the, you know, Episcopalian and Presbyterian, they're two forms of church government. But I think it's a bit, you know, why, I don't see a real need to like specify those two as being separate from each other because the words are used interchangeably in the text. So an elder is a bishop and a bishop is an elder. One is speaking of character. The other one is speaking of function. And then we get into the word pastor. Okay, so you asked, how does this work at Whitefields? Well, here's how it works. We have nine elders at our church. Now, not all those elders are involved in teaching, but according to 1 Timothy chapter 3 and here Titus chapter 1, they need to be able to teach. And they might teach in different functions, not necessarily from the front in front of the congregation on Sunday morning, but they're teaching in other ways and other um, aspects. And they're capable. They hold firmly to the word as taught, and then they teach it themselves and rebuke when necessary. That, that's what it says there in, um, first, or in Titus chapter 1, verse 9. Okay, so we have nine elders. Of those elders, two of them, you and I, are pastors and also elders. We also have a pastor at our church, Jason, who's not on our board of elders. He could be at some point. That's not, it's not to say that he can't be. It's just to say that as we add pastors, which we're going to, those people won't necessarily fulfill the function of an overseer. Mm -hmm. So, you know, currently we're trying to hire a youth pastor. At some point, we're going to hire a community pastor. So you could say in the near future, we might have five pastors on staff and yet only two of those will also have the dual role of being bishops. Now, I know some churches, they would say, listen, a pastor is an elder biblically and an elder is a pastor. Therefore, you shouldn't have pastors who are not also elders. And I definitely understand the logic of that. In fact, that's an approach that I took early on. But what happened is that as we grew, we began to say, okay, we need to examine this because... Does that mean that everybody we hire, let's say we hire a youth pastor, does a youth pastor automatically become an elder, especially if it's somebody who's coming into our church who hasn't been part of the life of the church, they're coming in from the outside. And so we said, okay, well, let's look at these biblical definitions and functions. And we came to the conclusion that actually it, it is biblical and okay to have someone fulfill the role of shepherd or pastor who is not an elder overseer, but they still need to meet the requirements of an elder overseer. So that's, that's how we got to that. So yeah, that's where we're at. Nine elders, three pastors. Uh, two of our pastors are also elders. We're going to be hiring two new pastors within the near-ish future as soon as we identify those people and, and can take care of those needs. And so, yeah, that's how it works practically for us. Practically, yeah. And so, you know, when you look at this list, you know, as we would say, our elders need to, uh, you know, we, we judge them by this list or they should 
fulfill some of these requirements. Um, you know, some of them, like the first, you know, uh, as you know, Titus kind of gets into more, uh, you know, specifics here when he says, and these children are, you know, if anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery and insubordination. So, so what does that mean practically? Like if their kid goes off the rails, you got to kick them off the elder board or they're no longer allowed to be in a pastor position. How do, how do we look at that word believer? And, and it, you know, the Greek word, it can be, well, you can discuss, you know, what, what the Greek word is there. Yeah. This is a Greek word, pisteos, which means, means two things. Mm-hmm. So like think about the gospel of John chapter 20, where John says, Jesus did many other things that are not written in this book, but these things were written so that you may believe. So that word believe, pisteo. So that, that's the root word, believe and faith in Greek mm-hmm. is pisteo. So pisteos means faithful. It's a derivative of, it can be either translated believing or faithful. What it means is that they're a Christian. That, that's right. the essence here. And, um, and so this brings up a lot of questions, right? Because, okay, is this talking, it says children. Is this speaking of adult children? Is it speaking of minor children? Is it speaking of adult children in your home, minor children in your home? What if you have an adult child who decides to, like the prodigal son, right? Run off, squander everything, get into addiction and all kinds of bad stuff. At what point does that disqualify someone from being an elder, overseer, or pastor? And I think that from the passage, it's, it is a bit vague. And I would say where the word of God is vague or unspecific, I would say that understanding the idea of um, biblical inspiration by the Holy Spirit, I'd say that that is probably intended to be vague and open to interpretation is better, probably a better way to say it than vague. Because it's clear, it just needs to be interpreted and applied. And how you do that is going to depend on that local congregation and setting, right? So they've got this as a guideline, whereas it's a, it's, as a rule, it's a little bit fuzzy, right? Because uh, we need to know a lot of details. Like, at what point does this, like, mm-hmm. what does it mean to be open to a charge of debauchery and insubordination? That, that's something that is open to interpretation and application. And so clearly there is a point where having children who go off the rails would disqualify someone. But where is that point? And, that, and that's not exactly clear from the passage. And I'll tell you another example of this in the passage is, well, you could go down to um, violent and you could go down to, to hospitable, right? So they have to be hospitable and not violent. Those are two others that are used there. Okay, and a lover of good, like, okay, that's very much open to interpretation. What does it mean to be a lover of good? Also, like, what does that look like in practice? Another one is, okay, what does it mean to be hospitable? Hospitality is a very culturally fluid thing. So I remember being in Hungary, and they had certain expectations of what hospitality means. And those expectations are very different than what hospitality means in the United States. For example, in the United States, it's very common for people to say, make yourself at home. And that is to be, that they intend to communicate hospitality. Mm-hmm. But what they mean by that is, hey, that's where you can open up the fridge, get yourself something, you know, change the channel on TV, uh, and get yourself something to drink. Whereas in other cultures, hospitality means you sit down and I'm going to serve you and you're my guest, right? So definitely like hospitality is a very culturally determined thing. And so like, let's say I 
bring a charge against you that, well, one time I was at Mike's house and he did not meet my expectations of what qualifies for hospitality. Well, that's up to discussion because somebody else could say, well, was Mike's intention to be inhospitable? You know what I'm saying? Right. It, it becomes something that needs to be interpreted and applied. And that gets to the nature of this list because it needs to be in every context applied and interpreted as guidelines for the leadership to follow and train people in and um, measure people by. Mm -hmm. And the reason it's important that they're guidelines is because honestly, if you look at that list, you could, I think you could disqualify every single person in the world if you held to it in a very strict legalistic way, right? Like I could, I could find a time when you were inhospitable and therefore you're disqualified. Are you disqualified forever? Are you disqualified for now? You see, these are, these are the interpretive challenges of this passage and the application challenges. And so here's how I would put it. I would say this is a list of things that Titus was to look for and train people in. And the same applies to us today. We're to look for these things, train people in these things, judge them by these things as far as their um, qualification or disqualification for the office. And um, I would say, like, somebody should look at this list and they should be constantly striving towards these things as principles. And, and as much as they fall short of these things, they should be grieved by it and seeking to do better. And if that's not the case, then I think you've got a problem. But I think, like I said, because these things are culturally defined, you know, in every culture, we're going to be asking a question okay, are you hospitable according to the standards and expectations that are expected in this culture and the standards and expectations that are defined by this community? So, yeah, those are some of the challenges that go along with it. And, but I, I still think, you know, it's a very useful list. Just you understand that these are principles and you need to understand them as such. Yeah, and, you know, and historically people have, you know, applied these, you know, maybe in a somewhat legalistic way, you know, and with, you know, just with the one with the children, I mean, you could make your children behave at church, but it's the old adage, you know, uh, you know, I'm sitting down on the inside or whatever, you know, if whatever you tell them, you know, okay, I'm doing it on the outside, but at some point, and you know, you've probably seen it before, kids that grow up in a super controlled, and we call them, you know, PKs, pastors, kids, who are many times on display, tend to sometimes, when they're given, suddenly given freedom, tend to go off the rail because they are judged at a higher standard for one, but also they, they're, you know, their actions are on display because I'm dad's kid, mm -hmm. you know, and, and I'm supposed to be, you know, you know, free well, of debauchery and, yeah. you know, insubordination. You know? Well, let's say, okay, from a pastor's perspective, you look at that and then you start to think, well, then my kids better pull it together at yeah. church because they're on display and people are going to judge my qualification based on my kid's behavior. But then you know what also happens with people who grow up in this setting is that sometimes they can become resentful towards the church mm, yeah. because they can say, you know, I was, I, I was treated in this way or held to this expectation or judged, you know, people were, I was under a microscope and people were judging me and I didn't get to just be like a normal kid who goes through normal kid stuff. And, um, and they can grow resentful towards the church. And so I would say that's something to think about is that, you know, we want to follow these principles, but not in a way that would make a person feel that they're not loved or welcome or have grace 
So I think that that's an important point in this. Is like, let's remember to be a gracious community. Let's remember to be a Christ-like loving community. Let's remember that even the children of leaders are children in our church. And, you know, we did a baby dedication on Sunday. One of the things I always say is we're a congregation, not a crowd. And as such, we are taking responsibility. We're not just saying, hey, good luck raising your kid. We'll pray for you. No, we're saying we are taking responsibility. I love this phrase that we always say and that thing that we read Mm -hmm. that says, we, your church, will tell you these things until you make them your own. We are going to help raise your kids to know and love Jesus, not make it harder for them to know and love Jesus. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I completely, completely agree. Yeah, it's just, yeah, it can be a lot of pressure for, for kids, you know, uh, you know, on this particular list. But you told a story on um, Sunday about obviously Christians that did not uh, follow, <laughs> uh, you know, weren't a very good example. And uh, you were gonna finish that story. It was about uh, yeah. Rosemary's mother. Yeah, so Rosemary's mom, I said in the thing that she was not a Christian. Now I should preface that by saying that she's from, she was from, she passed away mm-hmm. several years ago now. But she was originally from Lima, Peru. So she was an immigrant. And being from Peru, she's culturally Catholic. I say culturally because, um, you know, I, I'm not sure that it was a real and living faith. But I will say, that, long story short, she did come to faith before she died. Mm-hmm. And this did not help because Rosemary, you know, had been praying for her mom and telling her about grace and about the Bible and about, you know, like, oh, I know what it was. The the real turning point in Rosemary's mom was when Rosemary's dad died. Now, they were already divorced, but her mom took in her, Rosemary's mom took in Rosemary's dad while he was dying. Mm -hmm. Um, And Rosemary took care of him and in the house there. And when he died, Rosemary's mom was really upset that Rosemary wasn't more grieved over his death. I mean, she was grieved, but you know the verse, like, we do not grieve as those who have no hope from 1 Thessalonians. And, you know, because in Rosemary's mom's mind, her dad was suffering in purgatory. Mm. And therefore, it was something that needed to be grieved, and you need to you know, be praying for his soul to be released from purgatory where he is paying for his sins, you know, that um, his non-mortal sins. And Rosemary told her mom at the time, like, mom, that's not in the Bible, which, you know, she'd been talking to her about reading the Bible, but she had, she said her mom had even told her at one point, like, I was raised that we don't read the Bible because we can't possibly understand it. We depend on the priest's to tell us what the Bible says, and that's good enough. Because if we read it, we might get, go off in bad directions or be confused. And Rosemary's always reading her Bible. And you know, the thing about grace, meaning that you're saved by grace, not by the things that you do. Her mom really struggled with that, which is why when this guy said to her, hey lady, where's the grace? When he wasn't paying his bills that he himself had racked up and he wasn't working. You know, for her, it's just like, this is what's wrong with, you know, you Bible Christians is that you're all about grace, but you use that as a license to sin. You use it as an excuse rather than actually like being serious. And, um, and that really pushed her away from that kind of idea of like, you know, Bible-believing evangelical Christianity. But the thing was like when Rosemary's dad died, seeing how Rosemary responded, how she was grieved, but she didn't grieve as somebody who had no hope, 
Rosemary then moved to Hungary. That was the time when I met Rosemary later on. And, and then um, she said that when she would come back, the way that her mom was talking had changed. It was no longer, if I can be good enough to get to heaven, it was when I get to heaven. And this confidence in what Jesus had done for her began to really take root in her heart. And so she said, yeah, her mom came to faith before she died. Yeah, wow, that's, that's a great, great ending. <laughs> you know, it's sad though that she had to, you know, step over the obstacle of other Christians to come yeah. to that understanding. You know, and that's kind of, you know, what Titus is looking for. We, we don't want to be obstacles for, for, for the world, uh, you know, to come to faith. We want to, we want to be able to show you know, the love of Christ through, you know, our, our lives. And this is a great way to start. I mean, we, we are called to a higher standard, and I think that's important to remember. And this is a great place to, to start, you know. We are called, and we're called to a higher standard because of what Christ has done for us. It's, you know, as you know, as her mom was working towards the salvation, we're not, work, uh, you know, working towards it. We are working because of it, mm-hmm. you know. So it's, you know, it's changing. And, 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 you know, praise the Lord that her mom came to that understanding, you know, of, you know, you know being, being in, in the love of God and, and uh, being propelled by that instead of working for it. And so, yeah, no, that's just a great, great way. You know, if you wanted to compare maybe this list with the, there's a sermon on first... Timothy chapter 3, we'll probably put that in the notes as well. You can see how these two lists compare, you know, as you're studying, you know, this particular passage. But uh, yeah, there you go. You know, it's great to have you with us this week. If you've got any questions, thoughts, you know, down in the comments below or just send us an email. We'd love to interact with you and God bless you. <laughs>